quick one. If you can hit follow or subscribe to this podcast, that really helps me track new listeners. Cheers. Welcome to another episode of the Wealth Journal podcast with me, Jay Hardy. Now, this week on the podcast, I welcome James Thomas, who is the head of UK, Ireland and Channel Islands for Rise ETF, who are Europe's first specialist thematic ETF issuer. And we'll get into what that means on the podcast. Now, James has a huge amount of experience when it comes to ETFs, investing in general and different investment themes. So I was very excited to welcome him on the podcast. This is essentially what the Wealth Journal is about, bringing people with knowledge and expertise so I can learn selfishly on the podcast, but also you, the Wealth Journal listener, can learn as well. And this is a great episode. We cover what are ETFs, what are the benefits to investing in ETFs, what are some of the differences versus other investment wrappers, it really is what the Wealth Journal is all about. But remember, what the Wealth Journal isn't about is financial advice. It's purely here for educational and entertainment purposes. If you are thinking about investing, please make sure that you do your own research before investing any money. And I would also recommend you speak to a qualified investment professional before making any form of investment decisions. Now, with that out of the way, let's get cracking. <music> So just to give the listener a bit of an idea, we've got James on today who works for Rise ETF. And I'm going to use this as a bit of an opportunity. And James has actually helped construct this episode. I often have a bit of a chat with the guests beforehand to come up with some questions and discussion points. And James has been very helpful in helping construct that as well. So I appreciate your feedback, James. So I think what we're going to do is because we're going to discuss ETFs, I'm obviously going to ask James just to give us a bit of an insight into what Rise ETF is all about, but we're going to cover a bit of a basic understanding of, of ETFs and what they are, and then we'll go a little bit more specifically into Rise ETFs. And then because James works in the investment industry, I'd also like to ask him a few questions about his experience and just relationship with money and things like that. So looking forward to this episode. I think this is this is pretty much what the Wealth Journal is all about. So James... Can we just kick off them with, you know, who Arise ETF, what do they do and what's your your role within that organization? Yeah, absolutely, Jay. And um, thank, again, thank you so much for having me. So Rise ETF is Europe's first pure thematic ETF provider. And I think um, as pure purists in this space and as we focus on thematic ex, um, uh, ETFs, we really feel this gives us the authority to be experts in this space. Um, so I guess the question is, what is a thematic um, ETF? So a thematic ETF, the, the kind of what it is, is very much in a name. It's an ETF that focuses on a specific specific theme. So this could be cybersecurity, um, it could be digital payment, um, or it could be something like medical cannabis, so something a bit more niche. Um, and really, this gives investors a chance to play more specific megatrends that they believe have long-term uh, growth prospects. And Really where Rise differs from the competition is we're not trying to diversify our product range with all sorts of funds. We want to focus on this space. So we actually create our own indices for each of our different thematic ETFs with the purpose of making sure that our investors get really pure play access to the theme they want. It's kind of the Ron Seal story. We want to give you what's on the tin. Um, so our founders have been working uh, in the thematic ETF space for collectively over about four decades. 
But then we also partner with a number of uh, thematic um, thematic research partners who really help us be experts in this space. So, yes, we're producing ETFs, but we also try and produce some really insightful research in this space, which any of the listeners can go onto our web- website and access as well. So that's us in a nutshell, uh, Jay. <laughs> Fantastic. And of course, I will link the the Rise ETF website in any of the show notes and people can just start to get themselves a little bit more familiar with your organization. If we just go back a step, because ETFs are very popular now with investors, you know, it's quite a an easy way for people to access a broad range of different stocks. Can you just maybe give a bit of an insight in terms of just what an ETF is in it, in its core essence? Yeah, this is a really good point, um, Jay. I think as um, they become more popular and they democratize more, I think it's imp- important for people to really understand what they are, right? Because everyone's saying, I buy ETFs here, left, right and centre, but to actually understand what they are, I think it's important before you start allocating to these, right? So an ETF is an exchange-traded fund and uh, the way it works is an asset manager will create a basket of stocks or bonds. Um, they'll put that in a wrapper and it will give you specific access to an area of the market. Now, ETFs come in all shapes and sizes. So let's take the, one of the broadest ETFs you've got, which is the uh, MSCI ACQUI index or that links into an ETF. And ACQUI stands for All Country World Index. So that has around 2,300 stocks within the basket. So super diversified. You have emerging market equities, you have developed market equities, all sorts of different sectors, um, different themes within there. And a lot of investors use this as a core allocation in their portfolios uh, and as a key diversifier. So you've got that side of ETFs. But then you've got on the other side is much more specific ETFs and more like thematic ETFs, which give you specific access to areas in the market. So let's take a medical cannabis ETF, for example, that will only have around 40 to 50 stocks within it. So much more concentrated, but gives you a specific area. Um, And kind of coming back to what the function of an ETF is and how they differ from other investment vehicles. So they are listed on stock exchanges. Um, So you've got the London Stock Exchange, you've got things like the Deutsche Börse, you've got the six in Switzerland. So ETFs will actually be listed on each of these exchanges, which means that investors can access it and get a price for the ETF throughout the day. And this is obviously very useful for certain investors who want to be able to place positions in a fund throughout the day instead of a close-ended mutual fund where you can only get access to it at one point throughout the day and gain one price. Um, but Jay, it may be worth me touching actually what the benefits as well, right? Because yes, there are ETFs, but there's also mutual funds. There's a number of different vehicles you can use to get access to something you want. So I guess the first thing is they tend to be cheap, which is good, right? So the um, if you want a real vanilla ETF, uh, like the S&P 500 or something like that, that's going to cost you less than uh, about 10 basis points a year. So really cheap. Um, if you want something a bit more funky and a bit more high octane, it's still only going to cost you about 50 to 60 basis points. So really cheap way for investors to gain access to a certain exposure. The other thing is they're diversified. So Jay, let's take cybersecurity, right? If uh, I said to you, tell me a cybersecurity stock that you're high conviction and you want to buy, it'll probably be quite hard for you to do, right? I think it'd even be hard for me to do in the industry. But it's pretty obvious that cybersecurity is an area that's going to do well over the long term. We've seen what's going on with Russia, Ukraine, com- um, companies, countries are spending more on this space. So if I was an investor, I wanted to gain access to this, I would usually rather buy the entire ecosystem of cybersecurity 
because then you, yes you are gaining the winners and losers but generally you're gaining access to the entire theme so what an etf does because it's a basket of stocks it gives you a diversified exposure to a specific theme or a region or a kind of cross-regional exposure um, i mentioned about the fact they're listed uh, on stock exchanges so this means you can get prices throughout the day um, the nice thing is is ETFs were first created by State Street Global Advisors back in 1993. The first one was the S&P 500 ETF. But since then, thousands and thousands of ETFs have launched. So you can really get an ETF for anything. You can get an Indian equity ETF. You can get an emerging market bond ETF. You can get a US equity ETF. So it gives investors a chance to play all different areas in the markets based on their kind of macro view and what they believe in. And the final point, Jay, and I, I won't touch, touch too much on this, but it's around tax efficiency. So there are some attack, there are some tax efficiencies to ETFs, especially around corporate um, capital gains tax. But I would advise anyone listening um, not to take my advice and speak to a tax advisor or a financial advisor when it comes to thinking about tax and ETFs. So a bit, a bit of a whistle-stop tour, Jay, there of kind of ETFs and the benefit that comes with them as well. You, you panicked me a little bit because I couldn't think of a cybersecurity firm. So I thought, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I thought is, is he asking me this question no, directly? I wouldn't do that, don't worry. Yeah, you, you sort of touched on it there, but can you just give me a bit of a quick difference between a mutual fund and an ETF? Yeah, yeah. So they can be, the thing I'd focus on is that ETFs and mutual funds are just the wrapper, right? So you can have active ETFs, you can have index passive ETFs. Um, passive is where they follow a specific index. Active is where an active manager will try and create alpha and try and beat a benchmark. Um, so these can be an ETF wrapper or they can be an index fund wrapper. Now, as I mentioned, ETFs are close-ended, uh, open-ended. Um, so they're on a stock exchange. And as long as the stock exchange is open, you can access, access that ETF at different times in the market and depending on the time of the market, at a different price point as well, as the underlying stocks or bonds go up or down. The difference with a mutual fund is that there will be one time you can access it at the close of play. So you just um, access it by that one price when the fund um, kind of closes its orders at the end of the day. So that's the key differences. You also see, you also find that there are more ETFs across different exposures as well, whereas index funds traditionally tend to be much broader, um, covering things like the FTSE 100 or the S&P 500, whereas with ETFs, you can have all different types of exposures covering factors, sectors, countries, regions, et cetera. And so that's like the core differences really between the two. But as I say, these are just um, vehicles um, for investors to access um, certain areas of the market. Yep. And I guess with ETFs, you still receive, if the underlying I guess, companies within the ETF issue dividends and things like that, the investor would still get a portion of those dividends. Is that right? Exactly. And I think this, again, comes down to the point of really doing your due diligence. It doesn't matter if you're a retail investor or you're an institution investor, is understanding how the ETF you're investing in uh, is put together. So you have accumulating ETFs, and the way they work is when the dividends are paid by the com companies, it accumulates into the fund and you won't be paid that dividends. It will come into the price that you're receiving um, for the ETF. You also have distributing um, ETFs where they will pay out the dividends. So if you are looking for income in your portfolio and you're allocating to 
a ETF that you believe is going to get you some income, it's important to understand if it's an accumulating version or a distributing version, because that's a key um, difference when it comes to ETF construction. Yeah, uh, I think in terms of my own personal preference at the moment, given that I'm still consider myself fairly young, I tend to look for the ETFs that just accumulate. I, I, exactly. I want I want growth rather yeah, than buying income, for example. Um, no, amazing. Thank you for that. Thank you. Um, I'm trying to think if there's any other ETF related questions that I, I did. Uh, one, th- one area of the, I guess you, you referenced it there where there's, there's now thousands of ETFs. Mm. I think just as a, as a retail investor, probably I struggle just to see through the weeds a little bit when it comes to all these different ETFs, like what, what, sh- which ones should I have? And I know you put, you wouldn't necessarily recommend or discuss that on the podcast, but I think just as a retail investor, that's probably where it gets a little bit tricky. Like, which one should I have? Where should I invest? And things mm. like that. So I do find I spend a lot of my time just trying to research different ones and trying to build the the right portfolio when it comes mm. to to ETFs. So and I know there's there's organizations that can help with that as well. Mm. No, no, completely completely, Jane. I know we're going to touch on this a bit later, but I think this is where um thinking about your approach to investing makes a big difference. So I, for example, will allocate to a wealth manager. Um, I won't say their names, but a super low cost, well diversified portfolio um, that gives you access to a number of different ETFs and it's across all regions, etc. So I use that as my core allocation. But then what I tend to do is then I go high conviction uh, with a with a proportion of my assets in areas that I really believe in. So I really believe that um, we need to change our food system. Um, And I think um, how we eat food, how we grow food, how we we farm it needs to change. So that is an area that I go high conviction in. And that's a way to do it rather than building out your portfolio with kind of 30, 40, 50 ETFs. Sometimes it's quite nice to kind of allocate part of your portfolio to someone who's going to do that for you, just give you a broad allocation. And then the stuff you really believe in, then you can go high conviction in a satellite approach out of that. Uh, so that's one way uh, that I've done that in the past. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for sharing. Um, we'll take a bit of a left turn. Uh, ESG, it's it crops up quite a lot in the in the financial press. And you, you also see it sort of with a lot of investment firms that talk about ESG. Can you just explain a little bit about what ESG is and how it also relates to to your organization? Yeah. And I think um, I've got a lot of concern about ESG because I think it's a good thing. I think it's important that investors understand what it is, right? And what it's looking to achieve versus sustainable impact investing, for example. So ESG stands for environmental, social and governance. Um, And really, it's a risk barometer for how you review a company and what their impact is to each of those three areas. And the thing I'll highlight is it's one third to each, right? So uh, a company can have a poor E score, a very strong S&G score, and have an overall good ESG score. So the environmental aspect, that's looking at how companies really safeguard themselves from an environmental point, point of view, how, they have, how they're impacting climate change, for example. Uh, the social aspect is the relationship with their employees, their suppliers, uh, customers, the community they operate in. And then governance is very much about how they run their company. Um, so around the leadership, executive pay, things like this. And you may have seen that, for example, Tesla 
um, has just come out of uh, the S&P ESG index. Now, you'd think electric vehicles, okay, that's helping the E point of view, but it could well be that they scored poorly on the S&G. Now, uh, I can flip the coin there and talk about someone like ExxonMobil, right, who obviously um, uh, are in the oil and energy industry. Yes, from an E point of view, they may be poor, but they actually have a very good S&G score. So they often do feature in ESG indices. So that's one thing. And that's something for investors to think about, right? Um, And then you obviously have sustainable and impact investing. Now, this is slightly different in that these are companies and stocks that are actually trying to make a material difference to the world and improve the world we live in from a sustainability point of view. Um, So an example of this would be someone like Beyond Meat, who are trying to reduce the amount of meat consumption and move us into more of a meat-free environment. So we kind of reduce that consumption and the impact on the environment. Now, one thing Rise are very focused on as a company is we only uh, have ESG or sustainable um, ETFs. Um, Now, the EU has done a great job in actually classifying these um, under their SFDR Uh, classification so sustainable finance disclosure regulation Um, they classify esg companies so the one we mentioned before as article eight um, and then article nine are these highly sustainable um, stocks and funds that are really trying to make a material change to the world from an impact and a sustainability point of view so when it comes to i guess investing and building a portfolio is there any is there any risk with with ESG? Could you be missing out on on certain stocks, or is it prudent for an investor to to maybe be a little bit more exposed to ESG? Yeah, yeah. And, and the answer to this really is a fewfold. So um, some ESG indices and ETFs they're very much focused on exclusion. So it's excluding certain areas of the market, be it pornography, um, tobacco, alcohol energy so i think part of this very much comes down to personal preference is if that's important to you and you don't want to be investing in those stocks then that's fair enough and i think sometimes when investors invest like that the performance and things like that isn't some so much of a concern because even if they lose out on a few percentage points a year they're happy to invest, be invested in a space that they believe is what they want to be invested in so i think it comes down to that now obviously by investing in esg you are often excluding certain stocks that might perform well. Um, so I think very much it comes down to your beliefs and what you feel is important to you when it comes to ESG. The uh, theory behind ESG, however, though, is that in the long term, these are the companies that will outperform. Now, obviously, ESG is a new phenomenon, and it will be interesting to see if this plays out. But the view is, if companies are well run from a governance point of view, if they've got good social criteria if they're trying to have a positive impact in some way on the environment then these are the stocks that could potentially do better over an extended period of time so that is very much the belief of esg yes it's about your personal preference and avoiding some of those let's call it the bad stocks but also there is the view and there is the uh, academia behind it that these are the stocks that will do better in the long term in the short term sometimes it's up and down right so post-covid some of the growth, growthy, more tech, techy stocks that tend to score well from an ESG point of view did really well. But this year, unfortunately, those ones have done poorly. And what's done well, what, the companies that have done well are the energy stocks. So 
some years ESG does really well, some years it does poorly. But I think the way to look at this is uh, with a long-term horizon and saying, will these be the companies that are the ones that are going to do well in society and grow um, over a long period of time? Yeah, I, I, I would agree there. I think if you look at just the impacts of climate change and how that's really been accelerating the last few years, yeah. and I've, I've heard quite a few discussions that the next or the first person who'll become a trillionaire won't be somebody who's, I don't know, investing in Web3 or some of these emerging trends, but actually it'll be the person or the company that solves climate change. That's, yeah. that's sort of where the future's heading, unfortunately, in some ways. Um, but I think, yeah, I think you're right. I think that'll be the, the long-term theme that we'll continue to see. Exactly. Just going back to, to ETFs, mm-hmm. how might a retail investor buy or gain access to an ETF? Yeah. Yeah. So there's a few fold, right? So um, my clients that I'm selling ETFs to are wealth managers, family offices, private banks, um, and obviously individuals can go via those organizations where they will run their money for them, where they will build a diversified portfolio. And I would hope at some point they own a rise ETF in that portfolio. So there is kind of, let's say, the secondary way of accessing that. Um, for people like myself, I obviously, I do put part of my money with a wealth manager But then I also like to take individual calls outside of what that wealth manager might do, because often these are discretionary wealth managers, which means that you give them your your money and you trust that they're going to make the right decisions. But you have very little impact in um, uh, in what they're going to specifically invest in. So, yes, that's good. And those are experts and they know what they're doing and they're going to focus on when you need your money, how you need your money and in what format. But then I think it's still nice to also take. Um, views and I won't say bets, but um, decisions on what you believe in and what you think is going to do well over the long term. And obviously, I know you've had a few people on your podcast from different platforms um, and brokers, but there are a tremendous amount of brokers out there that can give you access to ETFs. Um, so that's obviously a way for you to do it as an individual as well. Yeah, I guess for for the everyday sort of retail investor who's using one of them platforms or brokers you can tend to find most most etfs on on a broad spectrum usually just by searching for their their yeah. ticker they'll, they'll come up yeah quite easily so i guess that's one easy way you can you can access them mm-hmm. so specifically talking about rise etfs now um it'd be good just to you know understand a few of the investment themes and how you've sort of come up with those as i guess uh, fundamental ideas of what to what to focus on through through rise yeah, ex- exactly. I think coming back to my point at the beginning, um, we count ourselves as thematic experts and um, we really look to bring out themes that are in mega trends that we think are going to give our investors returns over an extended period of time, over a long period of time. We're not looking to create fads. We're not looking to create short-term gains for investors. Um, so really we are understanding the investment universe and looking at areas that we believe are long-term structural changes in society. So we currently have eight ETFs, which isn't a huge amount, I have to admit, for an ETF provider. But we're very pleased with that. We're proud of that because we believe each of the areas is an area that we that is going to do well over a long time. And I guess there's a triage of ways we think about launching a theme. I think, first of all, is, as I mentioned, is this a long-term prospect? 
Is there investor interest? So are clients actually likely to allocate to it? What is the life cycle of a theme? Because I think if it's too early on and there's too much change and there's too much volatility, maybe it's not an area that's quite right to create an ETF in. And also, are there enough companies? Like You want to make sure that the point of an ETF, that the theme is diversified, that you're protecting clients from volatility and risk. So really making sure that there's, a, there's enough stocks in the universe. Um, we created a digital payments ETF back last year, and we probably could have done that a year or two before. But the basket of stocks would have been much smaller, which would have meant there's far more volatility for the clients. Uh, and investors. So we really want to make sure that every ETF we launch is diversified, which has has developed itself as a um, investment theme and really gives investors um, a, a pure way to gain a um, access to that mega trend. And when it comes to your research process and how you identify the different f- firms to include in the basket, yeah, what sort of criteria do you do you base that off? Yeah, so. It, to be honest, Jay, if me and you wanted to create an ETF, um, we could. We'd go to MSCI and we'd say, can we have one of your indices? MSCI would say, there you go, there's your index, and we call it James and Jay ETF, and there it is. Um, but the problem we have with that is we don't want to go to a broad index provider and create a fund with them. We want to create our own indices um, that we go into uh, a lot of thorough detail on the companies and the stocks that go into it. So let's take, for example, um, cybersecurity. So we decided we wanted to create a cybersecurity fund. So first thing you've got to do is you've got to find all the cybersecurity stocks out there. And that's a lot a lot easier said than done. So what we decide to do is we partner with a thematic research expert. So in this case, we partnered with Thematica Research, um, who are equity uh, an equity research house and have an incredible amount of knowledge in the cybersecurity space. So what they do is they look at the entire investable universe and they look for stocks that derive income from the cybersecurity theme. They will then pass that list over to us and then we'll have this full list of stocks and then we'll go about creating an ETF off the back of it. So we'll obviously put some exclusions when it comes to kind of some of the ESG perpetrators we mentioned earlier. We'll make sure that there's um, no liquidity concerns with the ETF. So it's actually tradable, so it can go on an exchange. Um, And then we'll weight it based on the purity, the revenue they derive from that theme. So really the outcome is having an ETF that gives you really pure and clean access to a theme. Now, coming back, the reason why we don't want to just buy off-the-shelf indexes is because sometimes a stock might have a small amount of revenue from a theme, but actually is their main revenue coming from that kind of structural change? So um, I I can talk about sustainable food, for example. Um, So this is very much around its transition, our transition to a greener way of consuming food and manufacturing food. Now, Unilever, for example, does have a very small um, plant-based food um, business, but we don't include that in our fund because we don't believe that its true revenue is coming from that theme. Um, So that's why we rely on these research partners to be able to explain to us what revenue they have, what the breakdown is of their revenue, so then we can pick and choose stocks that we decide to put into each of our ETFs. Um, So it's a very long and thorough process to make sure that again that Ron so um, message I said before you're getting what it is on the tin and you're just getting stocks 
that derive revenue from that specific mega trend. And are there any sort of themes or mega trends that you particularly like at the moment? Without, I know we can't give sort of recommendations or advice here on this podcast, but certainly things that catch your attention. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think um, one that I'm pa- very passionate about, and I've mentioned a few times, is our sustainable future of food theme. Now, what this is really trying to do is access companies that are part of the transition away away from a negative food and agricultural system from an environmental point of view to a more green system. And really, it's trying to do that across the board from not only consumption, um, but all the way through to packaging, uh, including things like precision farming, agricultural science, water technology. So actually the farmers sourcing the food and really trying to change um, the ecosystem there. And I think the question is, why is that important, right? And Jay, I'm going to list off um, a few facts here, which kind of explain where we are now, right? So we've got a food system where half of the world's habitable land is used for agriculture. Uh, We have a food system where 70% of global freshwater withdrawals are now being used just for agriculture. Jay, if we were up in space and we looked down at the earth today, you'd see 1 billion pigs, a billion sheep, 1.5 billion cows, and 23 billion chickens. And that means that every 10 seconds, we're killing 24,000 animals for food. And that adds up to about 75 billion there or thereabout. And the issue is our population is growing. In the last 50 years, our population has doubled. And with that, there's a huge increase in demand for meat. So over the same period, our demand for meat has actually quadrupled. So Really, you can see, see, Jay, there's a huge amount of animals in the world and there's also a huge amount of consumption and desire to eat animals. And it's not just around there being more animals, but it's the land we're having to use um, for those animals to live on. It's the grains and the food we're having to grow. It's the rainforest we have to knock down to grow soy soy plants. Um, And I think, unfortunately, this is an area which doesn't get as much focus because of the lobbying groups behind it. So you may not know this, Jay, but we talk a lot about emissions and CO2 emissions and having shorter showers and uh, not driving diesel cars. But food um, production actually accounts for 31% of global human greenhouse gases um, and 14% of global um, human greenhouse gases comes directly from meat. Um, Now, the big issue is, uh, Jay, and I think it's quite a sad thing to hear is that quite often I have friends tell me, oh, no, this is an issue, James, because I buy my beef uh, from UK farms. Now, beef is by far the worst um, impact in meat from a CO2 point of view. Um, it far exceeds other areas. And the issue with cows is they're ruining animals. And that means that they can eat grass and then they ferment it in their stomach and they create a huge amount of methane. Now, methane is uh, the most powerful greenhouse gas. It's um, 80 times more powerful than carbon dioxide after 20 years. Um, And unfortunately, whether you're buying beef from the UK or you're buying it from China, they are still creating this methane. And actually, the transportation cost is a very small proportion of uh, the impact from that. So that's kind of the landscape and where we are at the moment the question is kind of how is an etf and how is a fund helping to solve this issue so the etf and the theme that we focus on here covers some key areas so 
you have the plant-based foods, um, the Oatly's, the Beyond Meats, which are trying to encourage people to eat less meat and think of uh, kind of um, meat-free alternatives. You've then got companies like FMC, Agco, who are working with farmers to help them grow crops and do it in a more efficient fashion. So in some cases, they can take the soil from a farm and tell a farmer exactly how much fertilizer and how much water they need. So instead of these traditional pictures we've seen of kind of planes going over um, crops, just dousing them with fertilizer, farmers can massively reduce the resources they need to grow food. And then it also focuses on packaging and supply chain technology. So what this ETF and this theme is trying to do is really capture this transition that we need to happen to move to a greener way of how we consume food, but also how we farm food. Um, so, yeah, it's an area, Jay, that I'm very passionate about, as I hope it comes across, but I yeah. think um, one that kind of resonates quite well. Those cows, they cause a lot of problems. I know, I know, it's such a shame. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I know, it's, 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 I mean, it is. I mean, I've, I've watched the documentary that was on Netflix. I think it was quite popular, maybe last year with David Attenborough talking about food and how we produce food. And like you said, it almost require huge amounts of policy change, but the, the, the effectiveness of the, of the lobbying groups is obviously very prominent. So, but it's great that there's, there's options because there there will be some investors out there that just, that want to want to invest more sustainably, want to help tackle some of these problems. And, what I've found as an investor, when I've invested in long-term trends, you almost have to expect a bit of a rocky ride with those investments because the, there's there's almost like it's hard to predict, especially when there's like non-linear outcomes when it comes to those sort of investments. So I tend to look at them with a very much of a long-term horizon, five to 10 years. Is that the sort of same approach that that you would advise your clients as well? Yeah, Jay, you're absolutely spot on, right? Like there is going to be volatility along the road, but I think it's undoubted that these companies are going to do well over or over an extended period of time because they're really trying to participate in this transition. So I think we would never advise clients to play funds tactically. Now, there are short-term catalysts that I think investors can touch on, and I think it means that there's certain points to enter that are more attractive than other times. But I certainly would never advise a client or an investor to say, buy this for a month and sell it because I think no matter how smart you are and you just need to listen to the likes of Warren Buffett, no one can truly call um, these kind of themes and say when it's going to go up and down. So the one thing we are confident are is that these are long-term megatrends and changes in society that investors can gain access to through this kind of theme. Yeah. And is there any, is there any other ones that you quite like as well at the moment? You've got a few interesting ones. Go on. Yeah. You know what, Jay, there's one that, uh, I hope this makes investors smile and it does make people smile when I tell them about it. But actually, when I go through the growth opportunity here, they kind of that smile changes to out like, wow, this is interesting. And it's a fund that we launched recently called our pet care ETF. Um, so the pet care industry is growing uh, at an explosive rate. And currently, you, you may, may or may not believe that this there are 68 percent of U.S. households have pets. Um, but it's not just the growth of pets and the fact that pet population is the highest it's ever been in the history of mankind. It's an innate change in culture about how we treat our pets that's so interesting. So millennials and Gen Zs 
um, now make up the majority of the owners of pets. And um, they're very much changing their approach to how they treat their pets and how they love their pets. Um, if you look back 20, 30 years ago, I don't know, your dogs often kind of were even in a kennel in the garden or on the kitchen floor. Um, they were fed kibble, uh, which was usually quite cheap and probably not that nice. Um, but the trend we're seeing is this humanization, premanization of the way we treat our animals. And it goes very much across a whole spectrum of sectors. So from a food and a consumer product point of view, there's now companies like one called Fresh Pets, which is creating human-like food for your animals that actually store in the fridge. And I've seen it, it almost looks like a German sausage of some sort. And I haven't tried it yet, but they claim it's human quality food. You've then got pet retail. So um, you've seen dogs walking around with cashmere jumpers and beautiful collars and things like that. You've got healthcare. People don't want to scrimp out on good healthcare for their dogs um, and, and pets. There's a company called Alenco, which is who, which are really kind of um, supplying high quality healthcare for their animals. And then there's also insurance. So you think of it from an investor point of view. What are you gaining access to here? You're gaining access to consumer staples in food consumer discretionary luxury goods healthcare, and then financials and insurance um and jay coming back to a question you asked before about how do we decide what theme we want to launch we also want to make sure our range is diverse um on the exposures you're getting access to so not the problem but what you find with a lot of thematic etfs is they're very kind of tech focused very growth focused you think of cybersecurity, robotics, AI, even things like clean energy. These companies grow very fast, but they, the valuations can also be quite high. So we wanted to get, give investors access to something that actually was defensive in terms of its um, sectors and its, uh, and its fundamentals, but was in a growth industry. And actually what we've looked at is the growth of the US pet care industry um, since 1994. And we've seen that during the tech bubble in the early 2000s, during 2008, during COVID, at no point did the industry industry stop growing. So what we see this theme as is, an, is almost a recession-proof way for investors to play a growth theme rather than playing something which is a bit too high octane. So we kind of say to investors, you might not be getting 30, 40, 50% growth in a year, but this hopefully will give you sustainable growth over a long period of time compared to something that may be slightly more volatile. So I hope the kind of smiles that when I introduced it have kind of changed to kind of frowns of how do I access this on my, um, on my platforms. <laughs> yeah. It's got me thinking, I think what's, fa- what's fascinating about this and um, almost something I've tried to get across with the, with the listener on previous episodes is that through developing just your financial intelligence, and just knowing that you have the option to put your money to work. If yeah. you just think sometimes and you can spot some of these trends, same with you know, a lot of people maybe working from home now thinking, actually, it makes sense. Now we can actually get a pet. We can be in the house to, to walk yeah. throughout the day. Like you said about how millennials now view pets, pets almost become sort of, uh, in some ways, a status symbol, an extension yeah. of themselves. The pet almost takes on a personality. They mm-hmm. dress them up and really look after them. You're right. That is a that is a trend, and for somebody who's maybe financially switched on and is interested in investing, you can actually then potentially, if you believe that's going to be a continued trend, get some exposure to that, and potentially over time, 
build your wealth. So I think it's, I, th- I find it fascinating. I think it's really interesting. Yeah, exactly. And like my mum's got a, uh, a dog, um, a lovely cocker spaniel called Milo. And it doesn't matter if my mum's kind of loses all her money and doesn't have a job. She's still going to feed Milo probably more than likely than she'll feed me, to be honest. The, um, <laughs> so, um, it's something that people always have to spend on and, um, something that's, um, very, growing at a very, um, explosive rate. Brilliant. I like that. So James, I'd love to just understand a little bit more about yourself. So can you just tell me a bit about, you know, a bit about you, your, your career background sort of up until rise? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I'm a Londoner through and through. Um, I was born and bred here and I still live here now. Um, Funny enough, neither of my parents work in finance. My dad's a doctor. uh, My mum's a psychotherapist. Um, and through childhood and into university, I always had a real keen um, interest in economics and politics. Um, I never thought that I'd work in finance, to be honest. But what I did want to work in was an industry that was engaging, that linked to the macro environment, and that it changed day by day, and it didn't, um, and it didn't, it wasn't stagnant. And I think that's the nice thing about finance. And if there's any of your younger listeners that are potentially looking at an industry in it is that every day is different and every day can change, right? So um, let's say Jerome Powell um, is making an announcement. Off the back of that announcement, my conversation with clients will change from the day before. Say Boris Johnson makes a silly comment on PMQs, that can affect how I speak to clients. So it's ever-changing and you have to have your finger on the pulse. You have to be reading the news and understanding what's going on in um, the world. So that's the beautiful thing about working in it. So I've, I've worked at a vast array of companies I worked at JP Morgan, uh, State Street Global Advisors. Now I'm at Rhines, which is obviously a bit smaller, but really what I'm trying to do is work with investors um, to give them access to thematic ETFs, but also help them um, from a research point of view. Um, and as I say, it's ever changing and every day is certainly not the same. So a bit about me. <laughs> Amazing. And have you sort of picked up any investment or money habits over the last few years since you've since you've been working in finance that you would maybe have just not have come across as an everyday everyday person who who isn't in the industry yeah absolutely and i think um so i've worked in finance uh for about nine years and the thing that i've found by kind of being in the weeds is um trying to avoid the noise so um the problem is finance is everywhere now right and everyone's got an opinion it's on tiktok it's on instagram uh, it's in the news people talk about it a lot more it used to be in the past it was you just give your money to a wealth manager and then you let it go to work but now it's people want to be really kind of gaining these 20 30 percent um returns in the short term i think what i try and focus on and which i've learned as someone who's in the industry is focus on the long term right don't focus on the short term wins because yes there are certain people who can gain big wins in the short term and they love to tell you about it but there's also people who lose a lot of money and it's a very sad story when that happens so i think what i try and do is try and be as diversified as i can but then also put in a bit of personality into my portfolio so um as i mentioned earlier I, well, I generally try and put a third of my um, monthly salary into investment. Um, so I obviously have my diversified stock and bond portfolio. As I'm relatively young, it's about 80% stocks and 20% bonds. I'm happy to have a bit of volatility there. And then I go high conviction with about 10% of my portfolio into some of the themes I mentioned and things that I have a real belief in. 
Um, I try and make it slightly ESG and sustainability focused because it's something that's important to me. Um, but then I also, I think it's also important to kind of focus on a rainy day as well, right? So I do still keep a good proportion of my investments of that third I take out in cash. I think I don't need to tell the listeners what's going on in the world at the moment um, and the storm that's potentially on the horizon that we're currently find ourselves in. Yeah. So I think it's important to kind of have a bit of um, dry powder and protect yourself in that space, in that sense as well. Absolutely. And I guess, you know, we are sort of entering a period of uncertainty. Mm. How do you sort of approach that as an investor? Do you mm. find it important to still continue to invest, providing you've got that rainy day fund? Jay, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to lie. And I think a lot, of pe- a lot of people do say, oh, just keep going, keep investing. Look, things don't look good at the moment. Let's face it. Infl- inflation is through the roof. Interest rates are going up uh, considerably. We've been in a period of low interest rate environment with quantitative easing, which has obviously um, pushed up the price of bonds and reduced the yield there. So equities have been very attractive. I think you look at the valuations, um, these companies are very expensive and I think the price has to come down slightly. So I'm not going to kind of sit here and say like, oh yeah, I just blindly put my money away. I think I am taking more money in cash at the moment. And I'd say, that is also representative of what we see, what I'm seeing with my clients, my investors from an institutional point of view, is that people are keeping cash to one side. I think we do need to protect ourselves um, in the current environment. But without doubt, Jay, yes, I'm still I still have the same approach of every month I will put some money into my ISA account um, and focus on the long term because a lot of this money I'm not looking to take out for quite a, quite an extended period of time. But I mean, cost of living is going up. We're on the verge of a recession. I think um, you'd be mad not to th- say I need to have a bit of ballast in my in my portfolio and protect myself a bit with cash at the moment in case I need it for a rainy day. Yeah, it's. Um, I've I've just finished reading a book. Well, maybe a couple of months ago by Morgan Housel, the psychology of money, and it it is interesting because you 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 hear these quotes from Buffett and it gets repeated time and time again. Mm-hmm. Um, be, be sort of. <laughs> fearful when others are greedy and greedy when others are fearful but to actually take that approach when Mm. there is a huge amount of uncertainty is very is very difficult i think um in reality and yeah you can look back at the the charts and you know the previous recessions and dips and think oh yeah if i just invested loads more during that time i would have you know the the benefits are there to to be seen but it's very hard during that time to to do that. I think so. Yeah, I think that's um, yeah makes sense. Uh, well, final question: Is there anything that you would tell a younger James about investing that you that you didn't know then, but you but you know now? Start early. I think that's the main thing. <laughs> um, start as early as you can. Um, digest as much knowledge as you can. Read as much as, you, uh, as possible. Understand. Um, the investments you're putting your money into. Don't listen to other people. And if someone says this is a cool idea, don't just blindly go into it. Really understand what you're investing your money in and also invest in what you believe in. Because if I lose money by investing in a sustainable future food fund, I don't mind as much if I invest in something that I don't believe in. Um, So yeah, invest in what you believe in, do your research and start early. I think that would be my three main points. Brilliant. Oh, thank you for that. Well, thanks, James, for coming on the podcast this this week. It's been it's been amazing. What I'll um, what I'll do is we'll link 
we'll sort of link the website rise ETFs on in the show notes and people can, can have a sort of look through the website, look at the different, different funds available. I've, I've had a look myself and there's, there's ways that you can sort of find out how you can invest in rise ETFs across the various different platforms, what tickers to search for. So it's, it's pretty easy. So we'll link all that. Um, but yeah, there's nothing more I can say. Thank you. Thanks again. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Jay. 